Hello, fellow Kentuckians and other friends, and welcome to a new edition of my old Kentucky podcast. My name is Robert Connie, and joining me this week is Kate Turner. Kate, how are you today? Hi, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, of course. This is this is Kate's last week with us. So thank you, Kate, so much for your help over the past few weeks. Uh, you know, it's been a joy. It's been great. Uh, whenever we need you, we'll call you again, and you'll either say yes or no, and everybody will be either happy that you're there or sad that you're not. So uh, we do appreciate you being here this week. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah, definitely. And also just as a quick programming note, um, we will just be doing a short episode next week because like Thanksgiving is that week. That's crazy. It's already coming up that quickly. Um, but yeah. we are, that's what we're doing. Um, next week, something really short. Uh, and then we will have a new guest coming in um, after that. So stay tuned. It'll be a secret. You'll you'll find out soon enough. Um, but we have three <laughs> stories to talk about this week. Kate uh, got most of like the election stuff. That's what you did the, th- the other two weeks that you've been hosting with us. This week, we are doing a very Louisville-centric show. Uh, there are three kind of big Louisville stories that we wanted to talk about. Um, we've kind of been ignoring city government as the state uh, elections have been rolling through, but we wanted to catch up on a few things. The first of all, the first thing we wanted to talk about is uh, something that Louisville Metro Council passed last week, uh, an anti-displacement or anti-gentrification ordinance. Uh, so we'll get into that and, and kind of the story of that. Um, then we're going to be talking a little bit about an update to the Anthony Piagentini drama. Um, he will be undergoing some sort of trial, but we'll be talking about the, what the prognosis is there, what the process looks like, and you know what 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 likely uh, lies in store there. And then lastly, uh, there was a sick out of JCPS school bus drivers last week also um, that we felt like we needed to talk about catch up on um, you know never have we talked about bus drivers as much as we are right now but they are in the news and they're doing a lot of stuff so uh, there's there's definitely some stuff that we need to talk about some some situations involving the education system about bus drivers so that's what we're going to be doing last so Kate uh, last week Louisville's Metro Council passed an anti-displacement ordinance by a vote of 25 to nothing. There was no opposition. It passed. What's the definition of unanimously? Does everybody have to vote for it for it to be unanimous, or does that just mean that nobody voted against it? Did anyone abstain? Yeah, there were some people that weren't present. So I think there's like 27 people on Metro Council, so it was like 25 to nothing uh, with two people not there. Anyways, nobody voted against it. And I don't know, those two people probably would have voted for it. We'll see. Um, Anyways, this ordinance was the result of three years of work by groups, including the Historically Black Neighborhood Assembly and the Louisville Tenants Union. So what does the ordinance do? So the ordinance allows for the creation of something called a results matrix to determine whether or not a project can qualify for public money. That means that any project that wants to utilize public land or have a TIF or have some sort of tax incentives would have to go through this process uh, which is they're going to be calling it a displacement assessment process. Uh, the process has yet to be created, but uh, there is a, a, a situation set up for that, that, that whole process to be created. The ordinance calls for an accredited research department within an academic institution selected by the Office of Housing and Community Development to create this assessment. And then once that assessment is created, it, it is going to need to be like then reapproved by the council. So they're like, we're the or, this ordinance sets up the situation, says we're going to need to have this, uh, we're going to need to have this process, and here's how we're going to create it. And then once we create it, we're going to have to affirm it basically. So that's that's I think the biggest like policy that is put forward in the ordinance. 
The ordinance also creates the Louisville Metro Anti-Displacement Commission, which would periodically review and recommend updates to the displacement assessment. So members of this commission are going to have to come from what are called displacement areas, which are places at higher risk for displacement, according to Metro Housing's office and the housing needs assessment. Uh, this body will have nine voting members, which will be uh, appointed by the mayor. So before we get into like the way in which the, the bill is passed and like the story of it, like what's what's in the bill and what it actually does. Um you know, this is a big, big, big issue. Housing, gentrification, supply, demand, uh, you know, uh, the, the, uh, the, the access. Hot of, topic. Yeah, that, Jasmine and I have talked about this quite a bit before. Um, and, and I know that like just about anybody that cares about policy and thinks about these kind of things, as I know you do, Kate, um, you know, they, they've, they've got thoughts, they've got takes. Um, so, you know, what do you think about this, this bill as it's written, this ordinance as it's written? Uh, what do you think about it, uh, just generally speaking? Yeah, there's a couple of things right off the bat that I love about this. Uh, one is how involved the um, the historically black neighborhood assembly and the Louisville Tenants Union is involved. The fact that they're endorsing it, this is something that they've been working working on for the past three years. That's that's huge. These are people from these neighborhoods who are advocating for themselves. Um, that to me, right off the bat, um, <laughs> uh, is you know that that's uh, uh, is something that I'm liking about it. Um, I also love here that uh, an accredited research department within an academic institution is going to be creating this assessment, right? That means that we're going to have like real data um, by an institution that knows what they're talking about, that is going to be creating what these metrics are for how we decide whether or not a project is actually worth investing public money in. Um, some things that put me a little bit um, uh, give me a little bit of pause is that while some of these things can have really great intention, um, as someone who studied civil engineering and city planning, um, I do know that sometimes these things can be impediments to actually just building more housing, which is at the end of the day, what, um, needs to happen. Um, and actually today there was a really interesting article in the wall street journal about, uh, the city of Berlin um, that tried to uh, use a number of different anti-gentrification uh, policies in order to um, make housing more affordable in the city. And a lot of them backfired because they um, resulted in um, uh, slowing down the permitting process in order to actually um, renovate apartments and build new units um, and kept uh, developers from actually building more units faster. So um, while this is not, you know, permanently set in stone, there's still a lot of development here in terms of how this is actually going to be implemented. Um, I'm cautiously optimistic, um, but have some reservations about um, how this is actually going to impact the city. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I echo those concerns. I think that that's, that's a fair thing to get to get concerned about for sure. I do think like European style uh, policies around building codes or like even bigger cities in the United States, like New York or Chicago or Los Angeles or something like the, the regulations that the city governments put on, on in places like those are, are typically going to be a significantly more strict than they are here in, in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, this, this thing passing 25 to not to, to nothing, like we'll, we'll get into that, but, um, that, that, that makes me wonder as well. I, I do think like the core problem that this is trying to solve is, is pretty local. And, and I know that the 
main complaint mm-hmm. from the Historically Black Neighborhood Association and, and the organization, like the Jessica Bellamy type organizations, the ones that she's been involved in, are that like the city has been giving away money or the state has been giving away money mm-hmm. to developers without taking into account like w- the impact on the neighborhood. So basically out like this is this is like their language. Uh, you know, I, I don't disagree with it, but uh, their language basically is like our tax dollars are leading to our own displacement, which it's like that's mm-hmm. that's a pretty powerful message. And I think the complaint is like, we need to stop doing that. Uh, and the response is, well, we, I mean, how? How do we know? How do we understand what this money is being given towards? How do we know, uh, like, who's getting what money and what the impact is going to be? So that's like what this assessment is trying to get at, I think. It's like to, to have a matrix, to have a rubric, to have some sort of evaluation that's like regulated, that has some sort of like rigor around it to kind of say like, okay, this is how much money they're going to be getting. And this is the likelihood that this development is going to displace people who already live here. Um, You know, I completely agree with you that in the only way through our homelessness crisis, our our rent crisis is with with an additional supply of housing. Uh, I do think that there is a lot coming online. I, I do have concerns that additional regulation does slow this down, but I think that this is well designed. The fact that it has the support of the Republicans who are, you know, typically Absolutely. More, more, more concerned even than, than us on these kinds of things is, is interesting. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that your concerns are well founded. Um, but I, you know, this is pretty innovative and and this is, I think something the city can be pretty proud of. I think that the people who are the driving forces behind this legislation can be really proud of it, uh, because it is something that hasn't necessarily been tried a lot because like, like you mentioned, so much of the stuff that has been tried before, hasn't been that successful. So trying something new, trying something innovative could, could work. So yeah, good, good. Absolutely. And we don't know what the final forum looks like yeah. yet either, right. right? They haven't they haven't actually formed this commission. Um we don't know what that's going to look like. So I think that there's reason for great optimism here. Yeah, I agree. So let's talk a little bit about how how this came to be, how this came to pass. So on the Metro Council itself, Jacory Arthur, I think, was kind of the main driving force behind this thing. Uh, but but Kamar Rushad, Tammy Hawkins, and Ben Reno Weber uh, were the were the sponsors of this legislation. They kind of co-sponsored it all together. Um, but I do think that like it's fair to say that beyond the Metro Council, the driving force has been the Louisville Tenants Union. Um, and and I do want to like by name call out Jessica Bellamy, who has been kind of leading this effort. Um, you know, she uh, as a person. She she does a lot of work in town. She 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 puts a lot of feet to the fire. Uh, I I have I have been on opposite sides of her. Uh, not not like we we don't know each other, but like I have disagreed with things that she said in, in public, and I've been a little like taken aback by some of the things that she said. But but I do think that this specific action uh, is something that she should be really proud of, and, and it you know I think that um, I I think it's really cool, and I think it's really good that the the work that she's that she's done here. Um, yeah, I do want to also say that like the uh, the original idea for this ordinance was that was called the historically black neighborhood ordinance, um, and, and there were like a lot of revisions that went through this. Like originally, this the 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 regulation was only supposed to be for like a small certain number of like historically black neighborhoods in the whole city, uh, and yeah, they expanded it to be for the whole city, and then made some changes to what was actually going to happen. 
I right. I think it is just really remarkable that the 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 ordinance passed without any opposition, uh, given yeah. kind of like you know the 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 bombastic nature of 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 some of the people who are behind it. Like these are some of the 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 hardest left people in the entire city, uh, and they got all the Republicans to vote for their thing. That's that's right. Really impressive work by them, and also like really impressive work by the Republicans. Um, you know, Republicans did credit Ja'Cory Arthur with working in, in, them into discussions mm-hmm. early uh, and, and with being open for their request to revision. So it is like here in Louisville, things things do work that way. I do think it is important. I mean, to that point, I think it's important to point out that this is specifically for whether or not public dollars are going to a specific project, right? This right. isn't talking about approvals for totally private projects. Um, so I think that that probably plays into a lot of why this is not particularly controversial, <laughs> right? Uh, because it makes sense, right, that we should have a strict um, matrix and metric for how we how we measure um, how effective our public tax dollars are in terms of ensuring our neighborhoods re- retain the character of the the people who currently live in them. Right, um, that makes a, a ton of sense and is not particularly controversial. Um, I think that where you would start getting into some more more heated arguments is when you start talking about approvals for totally private projects. Right. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I, I think at the core of it is like things are so messed up here that there's like mm-hmm. things that we can all agree upon that we can fix no matter where we're coming from. Uh, we just got to figure out what those are. And that, and that takes work. And those people did that work. Um, absolutely. Yeah. J- just to like put a cap on this, uh, this ordinance uh, still has a ways to go before anything starts happening. You know, they do have to, to create the matrix uh, the commission has to be filled, uh, and, and then, you know, time is going to have to pass. We're going to actually have to have projects that go through the process and then, uh, either get built or don't get built. And, and, and in order for us to see like what's going to happen. So, you know, ways to go before we can say that this ordinance did what it said was going to do or not. But, but I do think at the end of the day, like the thing that I'm, I'm really like, I think it's great. I do think it is likely to make a difference. I think it is important that people came together and did this work. But I'm really impressed at just the ability of people in the city from extremely different viewpoints, very conservative to, to like, you know, basically like, yeah, like very, very left, uh, we're, we're able to come together and craft policy. Here in Metro mm-hmm. Louisville, we are doing government. We are doing government here in the way that it's supposed to happen. Uh, our state legislature does not work this way. If ideas come from people who are like <laughs> center left, they're like, nope, it just comes from you. We're not going to go through with it. Uh, and, and, you know, our federal legislature is just a total disaster. Like, and it is like there isn't any governing really going on here at the local right. level uh it is just really impressive um that for something like this so many people can come together and, and craft policy and and that's the thing that i think i'm the most impressed with here at the end of the day yeah absolutely yeah. agreed all right anything else you want to talk about regarding the anti-displacement ordinance here kate no i think we're we're, we're ready to move on to uh 
Uh, <laughs> yeah. How, how Metro Council is not working particularly well. well. One, I mean, and, and, and here's the thing that's like one of the most shocking pieces of this situation is this is all happening at the same time that these people who co-sponsored this ordinance are trying to kick out a guy who was very complimentary and voted for it at the end of the day. So, <laughs> you know, I guess legislators are very good at compartmentalizing sometimes. We do want to update everybody yeah. on the Anthony Piagentini trial. So I think it was Allison and I a few weeks ago, we discussed the Louisville Ethics Commission's recommendations that the Metro Council remove Anthony Piagentini, a Metro Council member from East Louisville, from his seat. I think his district is mostly Middletown uh, and I think maybe like some of J-Town. It's like uh, Shelbyville Road area, basically. Keep going mm-hmm. past the Waterson uh, and then keep going and then go past the Snyder. Um that that was the recommendation from the Louisville Ethics Commission um, a few weeks ago, and a few things have happened since we last checked in on it. So a five-member charging commission has been created inside of Metro Council. Cindy Fowler announced the committee. She is going to be chairing it along with Andrew Owen, who uh, is a different Metro Council member. Paula McCraney, Betsy Rue, and Pat Mulvihill are the other three members. So... If you are aware of the personalities there on the Metro Council, all five of those people on that charging committee are Democrats. That was not the plan to start. Cindy Fowler said that she worked very hard to include at least one Republican on the committee, but was unable to. She said she was saddened that the Republicans refused to collaborate and then was also saddened by Piagentini's lack of contrition. I need to pause here. Kate, you weren't with us when we talked about this. Do you know the story about what happened here with Anthony P. Argentini? Yes, I I do. I'm familiar with it, but I think we should definitely do a a quick recap. He, uh, uh, go go ahead. No, no, no. I want you to do it. See if you can (laughs) see see what you got here. Yeah. So there was, uh, so basically, uh, Metro Council was reviewing, um, potential contracts that, uh, could go forward or not. And while some of these contracts were going forward, uh, Piagentini accepted uh, a contract job, uh, I believe. It wasn't like an ongoing salaried position, but it was a it was a contracted job for, I think, $240,000 um, that he uh, essentially was had a hand in deciding whether or not this uh, contract would go through with Metro Council um, and very quickly received this payout um soon after um so not a great look <laughs> yeah no um, that's exactly right uh i think that uh I, the the additional details i would give is like this contract for was uh for this company was through pandemic era like money that was mm-hmm. going out it was like i do believe it was like a 10 figure contract it was a huge you amount think it was- of money Forty million is so, what's coming to mind. I was I was thinking twenty, but it could I don't know. It it was ten it was ten figures. It was a lot of money that was going to this company. There's been a lot of reporting that they may not have necessarily been uh Yeah, forty million. 40. Sorry, I just wanted to double Good check. Lord. Yeah, 40, you were right. Yeah. Okay. So um yeah, it was a forty million dollar contract. Some reporting has said like this group could not have ha- handled a forty million dollar contract. Um, it was with the the healthcare CEO roundtable, um, and yes, and Piagentini was like one of the main people pushing, was the main person pushing for this, uh, and then accepted a deal with them to basically get paid two hundred forty thousand dollars for a contracted job that lasted one year. Basically, they paid him twenty thousand dollars a month. He also 
did bow out. He uh, did not. He didn't vote on the final uh, piece of the legislation, but he did, uh, you know, kind of push it through. He was involved in it with it the whole time. So, so that's like the backstory. Uh, and and yes, uh, the uh, one of the other people who bid on the contract, uh, like read the reporting that came through from Louisville Public Media, filed the ethics complaint, the ethics trial, the ethics commission picked it up, and they are the ones that recommended that that Piagentini live, uh, leave, get get removed, and now that that next order of business landed with the Metro Council, who that that's now we're back to where we were right but when i was talking there so right it has turned extremely partisan uh you know the charging committee is mostly going to be repeating work that was done by the ethics commission the ethics commission did a lot of due diligence they did a lot of research they did a lot of interviews all this was public all of this was out for out front for people to see uh read about etc um, so that's all part of that. That investigation has has been done already. But the charging the, the charging committee in Metro Council does have other things that they can do. And Paula McCraney, who again is one of the members on the board, she represents the Linden area. Uh, she said that uh, quote the beauty of this process is we get an opportunity as a council to hear from our colleague unquote. So you know this will be you know Anthony Piagentini did testify at that trial. He got very. Uh, he got very defensive. He got very angry, uh, and yeah, did not show any contrition. That was one of the things Cindy Fowler said that she was saddened by. Uh, but yes, Paula McCraney says she's interested in hearing what Piagentini has to say for himself. I think so. The charging committee actually already met today. Um, I have not read any reporting about it. Uh, I have not heard anything at all about it. But it could be a while before their work is done. The council president, Metro Council President Marcus Winkler, said that he did not expect to see charges this year. So this charging committee, what their job is to do is to actually come up with the charges that will be the focus of the trial. So they aren't trying him. They're just doing the investigation to come up with the charges. Then once their work is done and there are charges, then there will be a trial. So that won't happen like you know, Council President Winkler said that he doesn't expect to have charges before the end of the year. Um, the trial will then have to happen, and so that means that there will be a while. It will probably not be until like the springtime or later before any uh, any real action happens on this on this situation. Um, yeah. At the end of the day, and I think that this is the crux of the entire matter. At least one Republican will need to vote in favor of removing Piagentini. The required number of votes for removal is 19. That's a supermajority. And there are only 18 Democrats on the council. As of now, none of the Republicans wanted to be on the charging committee. None of them seem to be interested in taking up any of this business at all. They do appear to be unified behind Anthony P. Argentini. I don't think that there's like specific caucus leadership inside of the Metro Council, but I mean, people do refer to P. Argentini as the Republican leader in Metro Council. So like that, that is what it is. They are kind sure. of united behind the guy that is leading them. So um, Kate. He's certainly the most public facing of <laughs> Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yes. Yes. Absolutely. Um, Kate, I mean, do you what do you think about all of this? The charging committee, the timeline, this long timeline, uh, the prospect of a Republican being peeled away. Like, how do you feel about all this moving forward? Yeah, I, I mean, I think I, I really do not like the uh, framing of this. Obviously, I have bias in it, but I, I don't love the framing of this as like a, a witch hunt 
Um, I think it's very obvious that Piangentini did something like at least questionable here. Like the the evidence, you know, if you just list out the facts here, this is this does not look great. Um, he did recuse himself from the uh, eventual vote, um, but he um, he didn't describe why he was. Rec- recusing himself from the vote when he did it. And he had already signed a non-disclosure agreement with the corporation and or the company in question, right? So like, and he's financially benefiting significantly. $20,000 a month is a significant amount of money. I mean, one of the, I, I do think it's important to highlight here contextually for folks, like I ran for state legislature, I didn't run for a Metro Council seat. But one of the biggest impediments to being a public servant at this level is that you have to make a significant amount of money or a decent amount of money outside of what your position actually is. Um, Because these positions are themselves are not particularly lucrative, right? And that in and of itself is something that deserves a spotlight. So I, I don't love the framing of this as a witch hunt. I feel like that this is very much an, an important investigation that Metro Council needs to get to the the, the bottom of. Um, and, you know, I have personal bias in this situation because, you know, Anthony Piagentini and and myself have not uh, exactly had a friendly relationship on social media. Um, But, you know, that being said, um, this is not a good look. It's embarrassing. Um, And uh, it's not a good look for Metro Council either, um, considering uh, just we talked about in our last segment how important, you know, this body is to uh, impacting people's day to day lives. They're making decisions with millions of dollars of our money. it's not a good look. No, not at all. Not at all. Uh, it, it is, you know, the, you know, and 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 it has become unfortunately extremely partisan when it doesn't doesn't need to. I, I do think, like, to me, the longest lasting kind of like impact that that Donald Trump will have on our politics is the idea that like none of this, nothing that happens, and no like corrupt action can be prosecuted as long as you turn it into like a partisan witch hunt and you make make the assertion that like the only reason they're coming after me is because of my party Um, we are seeing this right now uh, at the federal level Donald Trump being involved in multiple lawsuits with every single defense being this is a partisan witch hunt against me and no amount of evidence seems to be able to break through in public opinion to be like this man did some extremely bad things he did some things that were illegal he did some things that were very dangerous in many instances and and for anthony piagentini you know he didn't call for people to sack the capital or you know he didn't like you know he sexually assault anybody or anything like this but he did something that was bad something that was very mm-hmm. corrupt something that was uh you know enriching himself at the expense of taxpayers and, and that's enough to get yourself removed from your office and he has re- used the exact same defense as Donald Trump saying it doesn't matter the actions that I have taken. What matters is only Democrats are coming against me. And as long as I can hold all of the Republicans together, I will be able to get away with this. An irony of this is like uh, Democrats had a supermajority on the council up until the 2022 election. And Anthony Piagentini is mainly the guy who is recruiting 
and working for for Republicans to to have them pick up those those two seats. So, you know, there were two seats that were in the control of Democrats that are now in the control of Republicans there in the South Louisville that I would say would not have happened without the hard work of Anthony Piagentini. So in a way, it may be his own political skills and his own election skills uh, that are going to manage to uh, allow him to enrich himself to the tune of $240,000 at the expense of, of tax. So, yeah, yeah, I think whether or not you could make an argument or like have proof that this was like a direct quid pro quo, like at the end of the day, this is a serious lack of judgment. And like, he didn't do this unless he thought that he could get away with it. Right. Like you don't do something like this unless you think you are going to have impunity. And, you know, as someone who ran for office, who was like scared to claim my rent the runway subscription as my, <laughs> as, 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 as a campaign expense, which I did ended up not doing, even though I was advised by people that I could, uh, you know, you have to, you, you are held to a higher standard when you are a public servant. You you, it is important that, that you are, um, so that we can maintain, uh, trust with the public. So, wow. Yeah. That's incredible. I love that. Like whether or not to, to claim my rent the runway subscription as a campaign expense. You should have. You know, you gotta look nice. That's important. <laughs> <laughs> I felt I I I was too worried about someone making the argument that I that that was you know uh, like I just flash back to like Sarah Palin and her like yeah, that was like uh, four hundred thousand know. dollars on, on dresses or something like that. I I mean I don't know how much rent the runways cost. It I don't think it's that much. It's money. it's one fifty a month. So go. not yeah. I, I think yeah, you yeah, could yeah. have gotten away with it, but you know that's okay. That's okay. <laughs> uh, all right, all right. Uh, well, you know, there's a long way to go in this. Um, maybe uh, there there are some Republicans on Metro Council who have served a very long time, um, who are not as partisan as as others. Um, I'm hopeful that one of them maybe hasn't been paying close attention. And once their trial actually happens, they're like, you did what? And we'll wake up to the extreme yeah impunity of this action. Um, but you know, that's a long ways away. Hopefully, uh, hopefully it happens. though. we'll see. All right. The last thing uh, I wanted to talk about today is the JCPS sickouts, uh, the bus driver sickouts um, that are that have led to some more changes for bus drivers. So, so this was this was a story that kind of dominated the early part of last week. Uh, we probably could have talked about it last week, but you know there was. <laughs> There's an election, so we got to focus there. Uh, but yeah, last week, early in the week, nearly 150 JCPS bus drivers participated in a sick out where they basically what that means is they called into work in mass, causing the district uh, to have to scramble. They ended up canceling several bus routes. Um, I think it was a little surprising to me. The administration of JCPS decided not to call off school. But did cancel routes. I think that's the first time that they've ever actually done that. So basically just said, you got to get to school some way. Uh, and, you know, a lot of kids were missing. Um, and, you know, that's that's just kind of maybe a preview of where we're headed as a district in the next couple of years. Um, there has been quite a bit of news about JCPS school buses uh, since the start of the school year. I think we talked about buses on one of the shows that you were on. Uh, we did. Yeah, yeah. We did. I was excited when you added this to the agenda. This is one of my favorite topics. Yeah, and yeah, you you brought the knowledge about like the the funding, the state funding not being there, and uh, all of that. So you know, go back and listen to the old Kate Turner shows if you want to hear more about that, or maybe she'll repeat <laughs> it for you here in a minute. Um, but basically, the situation has arisen 
uh, because more and more is being asked of bus drivers without an increase in support. So, yeah, Kate, before we go forward to this, why don't you lay it out for us just real quick? Like, why why are bus drivers upset, uh, like, in, in mass right now? Yeah, absolutely. So the uh, bus drivers, JCPS bus drivers, are represented by the Teamsters um, and actually met with them uh, while I was campaigning. So I... I went to the Teamsters Union Hall for what was supposed to be just a meet and greet with candidates, and it actually ended up being a grievance session for JCPS bus drivers. So I learned a lot about what they were facing firsthand. A um, couple of things. Uh, one is obviously just pay. I think at the end of the day, um, you know, all of us are feeling the brunt of, uh, you know, a, a lack of um, cost of living adjustments in our day to day. Um, but public servants, uh, particularly bus drivers and teachers are feeling this a lot more than folks, uh, who can just switch to another profession or switch to another job or apply at another company. Um, because their pay is, is stagnant and is set, um, by obviously, um, you know, whatever, uh, uh, negotiated uh, rates are at that time. Um, additionally, behavior issues are something that comes up significantly. But something that I really want to point out is that there there tends to be what I feel is a very um, red herring whataboutism about behavior issues on buses that people will say, it's not about the pay. The bus drivers are saying that it's about behavior. It's about behavior. And you know, behavior is something that is absolutely impacted by the resources that you put into the system. The more, the fewer children that are, are on each bus and the more bus monitors that are available per bus means that you will have fewer behavior issues. That just is the bottom line. And they had to reduce the number of drivers by almost 30% because of how little the legislature is actually funding JCPS transportation over the past several years. So um, I actually did a quick TikTok explainer about this exact issue. So if you head to my TikTok, Kate for Kentucky, you could see it. It's it's labeled there. Um, but I think it's over, it's 900 routes that is required to get um, kids safely to school uh, within Jefferson County, uh, that includes all of their routes for all of the different uh, magnet schools, uh, and they had to—they re- only have like six hundred something drivers um, to fulfill those nine hundred routes. So we're—I we're, mean, thirty percent of those of of those roles are not filled, um, and so they have situations where they have these bus depots where they drop kids. Or it's like a public transportation system where you, the kids, when they're just get going to school. They ride to one location, switch to a different bus, and then ride to their school. Um, And so it's a very, like, complex network of systems that also requires that sometimes there are three, four kids per seat on those those seats that are intended for just two kids um, packed full. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's a horrific situation. And so I think that anyone that's talking about this that isn't talking about the funding from the legislature, which right now is at 70% of what is required, but it has been as low as 55% of what is required in the past several years. Um, Anyone who isn't discussing that from the start 
is is not serious about actually solving this issue. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. A great, great uh, summarization of everything that's going on here. I do think it's funny whenever uh, people who did not grow up in Jefferson County talk about buses depoting. Uh, it is like a fact of life here. And I would say like one of my most traumatic experiences as a child, it was uh, being 11 years old and uh, taking the bus to the depot. And um, I got had a piece of paper my mom gave me about which bus I was supposed to get onto next, and that bus was just not at the depot. Uh, it had been a substitute bus, but I'm just like wandering around the parking lot at Eastern High School until like somebody uh. who I like, I like to this day think it might have been an angel, like came out of a bus, looked down and said, What school are you trying to get to, honey? And I was like, Zeke. And they're like, Okay, it's that bus right there. And I got on the bus as an 11 year old and went to school. It was like six o'clock in the morning. And, uh... Yeah. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's scary. I think that actually. I think that that's actually you highlight a really important point that like these are kids that we're getting to and from school an 11 year old should not be in that situation. Um, And this ultimately comes down to safety for both our bus drivers and also our kids. You know, it's a lot of faith that parents are being asked to put into a system um, that, you know, has not exactly uh, earned a lot of faith in it. So uh, it is certainly a a scary situation for everybody involved. Um, You you did mention and I think, you know, I I have I had this point written out, but you already nailed the, the hit the nail on the head there that the issue that has come up the most kind of in media reporting around this has been discipline um and and yeah like kids being disruptive on the bus or whatever um but you are exactly right the fact of the matter is we do not have fewer children to transport we are trying to transport more children with fewer bus routes and fewer bus drivers and one of the results of this situation no matter how much software and how much like advanced uh, uh, you know artificial intelligence you apply to the the system uh, is you're trying you're going to have more children on each bus because the number of buses has gone down and the number of students has not gone down the number of students has actually probably increased so uh that means more and more children on the bus is tough and and just think about this situation you have up to 70 kids on one bus that's the the maximum that's allowed on the bus 70 people one adult who is trying to both manage the bus and drive the bus at the same time so that (laughs) you're going you know 65 or i guess probably buses go a little slower than that you're going like 55 miles an hour down the highway some kid in the back is like sticking his whole half half of his body out of the window because he doesn't have a fully developed prefrontal cortex because he's a 14 year old boy uh and and his friend dared him to and you know what are you supposed to do in that situation that's that's crazy that's scary right that's uh that's just the situation that these bus drivers are being asked to deal with um so yes that's that is the the situation we're, we're dealing with here so what the courier journal reported was that bus drivers wrote 50 15,000 referrals last year. Now, I don't know if they had referrals where you went to school, Kate, but uh, whenever I hear that word, I, it still like strikes a little bit of fear in me. Now, I, I was I, I was I was a well-behaved student. I was a good child. Um, so that type of discipline was very effective on me. Uh, it isn't for every kid. Uh, that's just a fact of, of the world. Um, uh, they, but referrals are basically just like, hey, you're in trouble. You've got to take this to somebody important and they're going to figure out what to do with you. Um, right. It's I, an official reprimand. Yeah, it's 
it, well, it is, it is like, I, this situation, situation has gotten beyond my ability to control. Um, like if you're a teacher, you know, you're supposed to keep control of your classroom. But if somebody's being like so disruptive that you can't handle it anymore, you give them a referral, you send them to the assistant principal and they figure out what to do because that's their job. Um, bus drivers, are supposed to be doing that on buses. If, if a kid is being bad that, or they're doing something that ha, is a disciplinary uh, offense that's beyond their ability to control, they're basically supposed to give them a referral and that is supposed to, to you know, they're supposed to take it to, like, the assistant principal or whatever. But, like, if you're taking a kid home from school, and, <laughs> you know, here's your referral. Take it to school in the morning. You know, that kid's crumpling that thing up and throwing it away. Uh, you know, that's, yeah. that's kind of well. And I don't know if that's exactly how it's happening. But there has been um, the, the, the kind of the, the story here is that the bus drivers um, were frustrated because there wasn't necessarily like, a lot of accountability about the referrals that they had written and what actions were being taken uh, as, uh, you know, because of those things. And that is the reform that basically JCPS put into effect. So there is now going to be somebody at all depots. So like if you write a referral um, you are able to give a copy to the person at the depot who's called the climate and culture staff member who then is going to supposed to be like reporting back to the bus drivers about the actions that were taken so that there is a record about like what's going on and there is some more like uh, the chain of command is a little clearer about what's what's going on here. So, um, you know, if there are things that require more intervention, um, that that intervention is actually happening. I do think that that is important, even though the core of the issue is the thing that we already discussed here. There's a lot of kids yeah. in transportation, and not a lot of uh, not not a lot of situations with. Uh, that, that, you know, not a lot of uh, reform around more buses or more drivers or fewer kids. Uh, that that is yeah. that is where we're at with this. Feels so, like a Band-Aid. Um, definitely feels like a Band-Aid. Uh, so the one other point about the union is like they, they have been kind of in a tough, tough spot. Right. Because like public employees, bus drivers being public employees are not technically like not legally allowed to strike so this action this sick out like is not technically a strike and um you know you could probably have a long lawsuit about whether or not this action is legal uh, but the union can't be like we asked people to sick out i don't know what actually happened i don't know what is going on here right. how they organized it or whatever um but the union has basically tried to to thread the needle and i think they've done a good job of it of representing their drivers while also making very clear that they didn't do anything illegal here um right the the president think, oh go ahead oh i was just gonna say also important context here is that the majority of these happened on the monday before election day yes. too mm -hmm. so you know uh, I think that there's a lot to be said about having a single day of school uh, and then having a day off yeah. uh, and a bunch of people just, you know, uh, so I think that that's, that's some an important context. One, one way to make sure people, uh, you know, take up your action is to make it convenient for them to do so. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Uh, yeah. I do think though, that like these changes that were made to the disciplinary system with this, whatever it is, the culture and uh, climate and culture staff member, uh, the union president, John Stovall, uh, the, the president of the Teamsters local there, he did say that that change, quote, lets drivers know that they're taking some of this stuff seriously, unquote. So, you know, I don't know if it's going to satisfy what they what they're asking for here. But, you know, I, I guess that they are like seeing this as a good gesture from JCPS. Right. So 
at the end of the day, the bigger issues at play aren't aren't able to be fixed right now. Like they the the system as it exists this year exists as it does this year, and there's not a lot of changes that they can make to it because of obligations and, and the way that the school is set up. But JCPS has made clear that they are going to make these bigger changes that are going to cause, um, you know, basically they're just going to cut transportation. Um, they're legally allowed to do that. They haven't in the past. Uh, in the past, JCPS has done a very good job to ensure that all kids that are going to whatever school they're going to are able to get to those schools on the school bus. That will not be the case next year. Probably, I think for the first time ever. Um, you know, kids that want to go to magnet school, I don't exactly know how the, the, the situation is going to work, but I expect probably kids that, you know, opt to go to magnet schools probably will have to provide their own transportation. Right. Um, and, you know, I, I think that there's been a lot of reporting that is like, oh, you know, if you want your if you're a like rich white kid um, and you want to go to manual, you got to provide your own transportation. I, I went to manual and, and, you know, my mom and dad probably could have found a way for me to provide transportation for me to go to manual. But the thing is. It's not all rich white kids. This is a public school. There are a lot of, uh, you know, poor but smart brown and black kids uh, that are from other parts of the city that get into manual uh, and and are able to ride the bus to get there. Um, And the people that you're going to hurt the most by not providing that transportation are those brown and black kids that live in those areas that want to go to the magnet schools. So, you know, this isn't good. And there isn't a way to do this that doesn't uh, hurt hurt people at the end of the day so uh yeah yeah. um you know it's a shame um i think you're very much spot on to say that uh this is this is the state legislature's problem um it is a funding issue with more money to support more drivers and more buses and more routes we could get back to a normal situation where we had the 900 routes that took less full buses with maybe more monitors to uh to school so you know that is that is yeah. what it is. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, you highlighted an important thing that this is is definitely, you know, an equality and equity issue um, for, you know, students who don't have the option of, of getting some sort of private transportation. Um, but this is also like a traffic safety issue. Um, yeah. Like, you know, the, the, the number of cars that have to end up, I mean, if you've been in a, in a, in a pickup line at an elementary or middle school, which I have a dozens of times because my nephews, uh, I was part of their childcare network, um, while I was, uh, running for office. And, you know, that was just part of my duties was just like regularly picking them up. And the amount of congestion that happened on these roads around schools, you know, is, is significant. It's, this is, it's not a small thing to just say, okay, we're switching over to a system where you have to have a private, private transportation of some kind. Um, the safest and best way to get kids to school is using, uh, public education, transportation dollars on school buses. That's the best way to do it. It's the most efficient way to do it. It's the safest way to do it. And, um, you know, it, it has a lot of other costs to it um, if we don't, other than just the direct impacts to those students. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, there's a long, long history in the state of, of people being like, well, 
we didn't do uh, a good enough job with the money that we invested, so we might as well just invest even less. Uh, and I'm afraid that that's what's happening here. Uh, it's a real shame. I think it is going to be it's, – it's just bad all around. We need more funding for transportation. Um, we need more funding for education. Uh, we need teachers to have raises. We, there's a lot of stuff that we need. Um, and, and I think it's unlikely that, that we're going to get it, but we'll see. Um, you know, this definitely has caught the attention of uh, the Republican members of the legislature from Louisville, but a lot of their solutions seem to be very draconian. Um, doesn't seem to be the right thing, but maybe they'll attach, like, in addition to this extremely draconian stuff, maybe they'll also attach some additional funding to at least make it less terrible. But Session doesn't start. I'm for not t- holding my breath. <laughs> yeah, session doesn't start for a couple months, so uh, the nightmare for that one doesn't happen yet. All right. Well, e- this is just typical ending for the show. Just a uh, just dystopian type of situation. Uh, but you know what? It is. It is what it is. It is what it is. Uh, Kate Turner, I really do appreciate you being here with us these past three weeks. It's been a joy to have you. It's been the best. Thank you for having me. It's an honor. I appreciate it so much. Well, I appreciate you saying that. All right, everybody. Uh, You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at MyOldKYPod. You can uh, subscribe to our newsletter, which doesn't come out that often, but it does sometimes, at tinyletter.com slash newsletter. You can find us on the podcasting app of your choice, and we are part of the Dimcast and Forward Kentucky Networks. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week.